Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus podcast. Tonight I promise you a second show because I did one earlier in the day, which is very rare, maybe on the weekend, to just discuss Olivia de Havilland. You know, I'm a classic film person and she was an interesting character. I mean, you know, um, you think of the people that she acted with. We're going to talk about that in tonight's episode. So stay tuned. I promise you a show all about Olivia de Havilland. Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus podcast. Now, yes, earlier we talked about Olivia de Havilland, but we're going to talk about something that occurred in, uh, you know, that really changed actors and actresses, and that's the de Havilland Law. The de Havilland Law is the common name of a published judicial opinion interpreting California Labor Code Section 2855, a California law which prevents a court from enforcing specific performance of an exclusive personal services contract, creating a non delegable duty on the part of an individual to another party and no other to render certain services beyond the term of seven calendar years from the commencement of service. The section was enacted as part of a new labor law in 1937. The Civil Code Section 1980, which has been enacted as part of the original California Civil Code, in 1872, the statute had originally provided for a two years limit on specific enforcement, but the limit was amended in 1931 to seven years. Hollywood industry lawyers in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s took the position that an exclusive personal services contract should be tested as, a suspended, as suspended during the periods when the artist was not actually working. Since no artist could be working every single day, that is, including holidays and weekends, this interpretation meant that two or later seven years of actual service would be spread over a much longer calendar period, thus extending the time which during which the studio system had complete control of a young artist's career. In response, actress Olivia de Havilland, backed by the Screen Actors Guild, filed a lawsuit on August 23, 1943, against Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers had typecast de Havilland as an ingenue, but she strongly preferred the other kinds of roles she had been given when she was had been able to convince the studio to loan her out to other studios. The lawsuit resulted in a landmark decision of the California Court of Appeal for the Second District in de Havilland's favor on December 8, 1944. In a unanimous opinion signed by Justice Clement Lawrence Shin, the three-justice panel adopted the common-sense view that seven years from the commencement of service means seven calendar years. Since de Havilland had started performance under the under her Warner annual contract on May 5th, 1936, which had been renewed six times pursuit to its term since then, and seven calendar years had elapsed from the date. The contract was no longer enforceable, and she was free to seek projects with other studios. The court misspelled de Havilland's last name, meaning that the case was published as de Havilland. 
De Havilland's legacy victory, legal victory reduced the power of the studios and extended the greater creative freedom to performers, starting with herself. Although Jack Warner tried to discourage other studios from hiring her, she eventually found work from, with Paramount's Pictures, where she won her first Best Actress Oscar for To Each His Own. 1946. The Court of Appeals' decision in de Havilland's favor was one of the most significant and far-reaching legal rule rulings in Hollywood. The decision came to be known, or informally known, and still known to this day as the de Havilland Law. While today's film and TV actors have enjoyed higher compensation and greater creative freedom intended by Section 2855, music artists have not. Jared Leto and Shannon Leto of the band 30 Seconds to Mars credited the de Havilland Law with resolving their music contract issue in 2009, which sets a precedent for music artists in Section 2855. In 2015, British singer Rita Ora also cited de Havilland Law in her complaint while seeking release from her American label. They eventually reached a settlement. And so I thought, you know, that to read that, that's something important that Olivia de Havilland became a part of, you know, and um, she was typecasted. I mean, you got to remember, she was playing all these different roles. She had done Gone with the Wind. She'd been nominated five, for five Academy Awards, one twice. Only once was she ever nominated for supporting, and that was for Gone with the Wind as Melanie Wilkes. But she won two Academy Awards, one for To Each His Own, 1946. And then I think the other one was for The Heiress in 1950 or 51, 49. I'm, I'd have to look, you know. But yeah. And then, of course, the famous feud. You know, it's it's hard to say what enacted the feud. Um. Yeah, let's see. And I'm not talking about the Betty and Joan feud, you know. Um, ah, here we go. A little controversial because, you know, the lifelong feud between the sisters Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine were born 15 months apart. Joan was younger. And both found success as actresses in Hollywood's golden age. But instead of bringing them together, these similarities eracibated a, ri- a rivalry that sprang up in childhood and lasted a lifetime. Yet even though they were rivals who became estranged, Olivia and Joan managed to respect and even admire each other. In a feud, you always care what other what the other is up to, of course. And, you know... Yeah, from a profile of the two in Life magazine in 1942, revealed one low point in the relationship. At the age of nine, Joan decided she would kill her sister. Whoa. She thought it all out carefully. She would let Olivia hit her once and then again in silence. But after the third blow, she would plug Olivia between the eyes. Joan's plan was to plead self-defense, but fortunately for American cinema, she didn't go through with it. Instead, the rancor between the two sisters would simply take different forms as they grew older. Oh my. And it says here, you know, that Joan initially lived in Olivia's shadow in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. What's interesting though is when, okay, so, you know, if I can find it, 
The sisters' rivalry played out in front of the world at the Academy Awards ceremony in 1942. Olivia and Joan were both nominated for Best Actress. Olivia for Hold Back the Dawn and Joan for Suspicion. Olivia was expected to win, but Joan received the Oscar instead. She then seemed to ignore her sister's congratulations when she went to collect her statue. When Olivia was triumphant herself on Oscar night in 1947, winning the Best Actress Academy Award for To Each His Own. She, in turn, snubbed her sister. But it wasn't exactly payback for Joan's earlier snub. Instead, it was payback for Joan's sniping. After Olivia had married novelist Marcus Goodrich, Joan had said, All I know about him is is that he had four wives and written one book. Too bad it's not the other way around. That's sad. Um... Olivia and Joan weren't strange when Joan died, which is true. Olivia and Joan had come, had some closer moments in the years to come, such as they attended a party for Marlena Dietrich in 1967. But when their mother became ill with terminal cancer, Olivia went to take care of her while Joan was on tour with the play. After their mother died in 1975, Joan accused her sister of not helping her see her their mother and of not inviting her to the memorial service though she did attend in Joan's 1978 memoir No Better for Roses which Olivia dubbed No Shred of Truth she didn't hold back from sharing her resentments toward her sister such as the paralysis that overcame her when she won the Oscar giving her flashbacks to their childhood animosity In an interview with People to promote the book, Joan said, You can divorce your sister as well as your husband's. I don't see her at all, and I don't intend to. She also declared, I got married first, got an Academy Award first, had a child first. If I die, she'll be furious because, again, I'll have got there first. Tongue twister. At an Oscars reunion in 1979, the two were placed on separate ends of the stage. Ten years later, Joan changed hotel rooms when she found out she was booked next to Olivia. But contrary to what Joan had expected, Olivia expressed great sadness after her sister's death in 2013. In an interview for her 100th birthday in 2016, Olivia addressed her relationship with Joan, saying, A feud implies continuing hostile conduct between two parties. I cannot think of a single instance wherein I initiated hostile behavior. Olivia also stated that she had sometimes had been defensive and added on my part. It was always loving, but sometimes estranged, and in the later years, severed. It's very sad. Very sad. That's weird. It's weird and, you know, um, let's hope that they're going to mend fences now. I know some of you don't believe in the afterlife. I do. I'm not religious, though. So, who knows? Who knows? Maybe this is their time to say, hey, we're, we're sisters. You know, let's... um. Let's bury the hatchet, and let's. Uh, I hope that they do. And so, as always, unpleasant dreams. Rest in peace, Olivia de Havilland. <laughs>